0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this wonderful event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. It's one of the major poets in the English language writing today. It's a great honor to have Sharon Knowles here, and I hope you're all going to have a fantastic hour in her company. I'd like to introduce myself, first of all. My name is Brian Johnston. I'm the festival director of Stanza, Scotland's International (coughs) Poetry Festival, which I'm sure, of course, every one of you has heard of. Just in case you haven't, it takes place in St Andrews every March, and I like to say to people that we are the poetry equivalent of the Edinburgh Boot Festival. If you're interested in poetry, and I think being here you must be, then uh, I hope you will be interested in stanza, and believe it or not, there are leaflets all about the festival available at the information desk in the foyer, so please do grab one of those on the way out, if at all, the idea of coming to St Andrews in March for Poets of equal standing with Sharon who read there a few years ago. Now it's a bit of housekeeping first of all, could you please make sure that mobiles, pagers, uh, things that go bleep in the night are switched off, don't want any interruptions and uh, the details of the event will be, Sharon will read for about 20 minutes, then we'll have a few questions from myself, we'll then throw open the questions to the audience. And as this is a poetry event, one of the things that I always feel is important is that we end with poetry. So we'll close with a shorter 10-minute set at the, after the questions. And could I ask you also to maximize the time for the poetry to make sure that you applaud at the end of the set rather than for individual poems. So today's poet. Sharon Olds, was born in San Francisco. It's lived in New York for many a year. In Britain, and I don't know about American publications because there are many and vast, but in Britain she has nine collections out and a selected poems published. She's the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award and, as I said earlier, is one of the um, best contemporary poets writing English, but also, and this is crucial because it's not something you can say about many, one of the best selling contemporary poets in writing English. Acclaimed by critics throughout the English world, described by one of these critics as writing poetry, more faithful to the felt truth of reality than any prose could be. As a poet and a poetry promoter, that is something I can definitely agree with. So could you please give a very big welcome to Sharon Oates. Thank you. Thank
1: you, guys. Well, it's very exciting, <laughs> oh, thrilling and nerve-wracking and wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your kind words. I always like it that the, most of the reviews by critics who, I don't know if they hate my work, but who have great contempt for my work, don't seem to get reach. Um, well, so I just thought I'd tell you about them myself. I'd like to start with um, this poem, Diagnosis. By the time I was six months old, she knew something was wrong with me. I got looks on my face. She had not seen on any child in the family, or the extended family, or the neighborhood. My mother took me in to the pediatrician with the kind hands, a doctor with a name like a suit size for a wheel, hub long. My mom did not tell him what she thought in truth that I was possessed. It was just these strange looks on my face. He held me and conversed with me, chatting as one does with a baby. And my mother said, she's doing it now. Look, she's doing it now and the doctor said, what your daughter has is called a sense of humor. (laughs) Oh, she said, and took me back to the house where that sense would be tested and found to be incurable. (laughs) I go back to May, 1937. I see them standing at the formal gates of their colleges. I see my father strolling out under the ochre sandstone arch, the red tiles glinting like bent plates of blood behind his head. I see my mother with a few light books at her hip, standing at the pillar made of tiny bricks, the wrought iron gate still open behind her. Its sword tips aglow in the May air. They're about to graduate. They're about to get married. They're kids. They're dumb. All they know is they're innocent. They would never hurt anybody. I want to go up to them and say, stop, don't do it. She's the wrong woman. He's the wrong man. You are going to do things you cannot imagine you would ever do. You are going to do bad things to children You are going to suffer in ways you have not heard of. You are going to want to die. I want to go up to them there in the late May sunlight and say it, her hungry, pretty face turning to me, her pitiful, beautiful, untouched body, his arrogant, handsome face turning to me, his pitiful, beautiful, untouched body. But I don't do it. I want to live. I take them up like the male and female paper dolls and bang them together at the hips like chips of flint, as if to strike sparks from them. I say, do what you are going to do, and I will tell about it." And this next, oop, librarian's present. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, book. Um, This next one is from a book of mine called The Father, which is like the story uh, from a daughter's point of view of a father's, a difficult father's illness and death. And this poem is right from the middle of that book. It's called The Race. When I got to the airport, I rushed up to the desk, bought a ticket, 10 minutes later, they told me the flight was canceled. The doctors had said my father would not live through the night, and the flight was canceled. A young man with a dark brown mustache told me, another airline had a nonstop leaving in seven minutes. See that elevator over there, well go down to the first floor, make a right, you'll see a yellow bus, get off at the second Pan Am terminal. I ran. I, who have no sense of direction, raced exactly where he told me, a fish slipping upstream deftly against the flow of the river. I jumped off that bus with those bags I had thrown everything into in five minutes and ran. The bags wagged me from side to side, as if to prove I was under the claims of the material. I ran up to a man with a flower on his breast. I, who always go to the end of the line, I said, help me. He looked at my ticket. He said, make a left and then a right, go up the moving stairs, and then run. I lumbered up the moving stairs. At the top, I saw the corridor. And then I took a deep breath. I said goodbye to my body, goodbye to comfort. I used my legs and heart as if I would gladly use them up for this, to touch him again in this life. I ran, and the bags, banged against me, wheeled and coursed in skewed orbits. I have seen pictures of women running, their belongings tied in scarves, grasped in their fists. I blessed my long legs he gave me. My strong heart I abandoned to its own purpose. I ran to gate 17 and they were just lifting the thick white lozenge of the door to fit it into the socket of the plane. Like the one who is not too rich, I turned sideways and slipped through the needle's eye, and then I walked down the aisle toward my father. The jet was full and people's hair was shining. They were smiling. The interior of the plane was filled with a mist of gold endorphin light. I wept as people weep when they enter heaven in massive relief. We lifted up gently from one tip of the continent and did not stop until we sat down lightly on the other edge. I walked into his room and watched his chest rise slowly and sink again. All night, I watched him breathe. The book after this new book called One Secret Thing, the next book will be called Stag's Leap, And it's a book of of end-of-long marriage poems. And this is one of those poems. Oh, it's called Stag's Leap, Poems 1997 to 2000. And this is Poem for the Breasts. Like other identical twins, they can be better told apart in adulthood. One is fast to wrinkle her brow, her brain, her quick intelligence. The other, dreams inside a constellation, freckles of Orion. They were born when I was 13. They rose up, half out of my chest. Now they're 40, wise, generous. I am inside them, in a way under them. Or I carry them. I was alive so long without them. I can't say I am them. Though their feelings are almost my feelings, as with someone one loves, they seem to me like a gift that I have to give. That boys were said to worship their category of being, almost starve for it, did not escape me. And some young men loved them the way one would want oneself to be loved. All year, they have been calling to my ex-husband singing to him like a pair of soaking sirens on a scaled rock. They can't believe he's left them. It's not in their vocabulary, they being made of promise. They're like literally kept vows. Sometimes now, I hold them a moment, one in each hand, twin widows, heavy with grief. They were a gift to me, and then they were ours, like little nurslings of excitement and plenty. And now it's summer again, late summer, the very week he moved out. Didn't he whisper to them, wait here for me one year? No. He said, God be with you, God by with you, God by for the rest of this life and for the long nothing. And they do not know language. They are waiting for him. My Christ, they are dumb. They do not even know they are mortal. Sweet. I guess, refreshing to live with, beings without the knowledge of death, creatures of ignorant suffering. You know, when I'm reading that, I'm thinking how, those of us who write with the eye, I'm thinking how in your poem, what I like to do is feel I am enough inside your eye that I can have, sort of, your imagined or remembered experience. I feel the same way about that I of mine. If it's really like I, only that, then it's a kind of a worthless pronoun, I think. And this is called Q. Q. Q belonged to Q and A to questions and to foursomes and fractions. It belonged to the queen, to Quakers, to quintets. Within its compound in the dictionary dwelt the quill pig and quince beetle and katzel and quail. Quailing was part of Q's quiddity. The Q quaked and quivered, it quarreled and quashed. No one was quite sure where it had come from, but it had traveled with the K. They were the two voiceless velar semitic consonants. They went back to the desert, to Kopf and Kopf. And K has done a lot better. 29 pages in Webster's third to Q's 13. And though Q has much to be proud of, from Q and I detector through quinoa, sometimes these days the letter looks like what medical students called the Q face, its tongue lolling out. And sometimes when you pass a folded newspaper, you can hear from within it a keening from all the cues who are being set in type, war boarded, made to tell and tell of the quick and the Iraq dead. <clears throat> There are a few more I'd like to read before our conversation. (laughs) I said to someone, well, I don't know, the composting toilet poem? I don't know, I don't know. And they said, look, the Puritans are the ones who left for your country. And uh, (laughs) you're okay in Scotland. (laughs) So, ode to a composting toilet. And then, at the green inn, there it was, the magic chamber. In goes one thing, out comes another, where what we make is made into fertilizer. The hopper, and enamel tank, where the liquids are separated from the solids, where the enzymes and vinegar in the forest green interior do their unpaid labor. And what can be used again sinks down to where it can be harvested near odorless. We do not think our shit smells good. But we do not think the earth should be turned into a great cesspool to accommodate our desire to part from our awful as fast as possible. In this drying cabinet, shit happens. And then, over time, it alters its nature. Its little busy toxins die. It turns to arable waste. Waste no longer. Waste not want not as in a blood bank, but dirtier, soilier. The effluvium of the offspring of the earth mingles. Fertilizer of New Hampshire, Kenya, New York, Boston. Yankees shit, Red Sox shit, in excremental harmony. Fill in the cricketer, soccer there. In excremental harmony, vegan shit, kosher shit, Slow food, fast, vegetarian, fruititarian, even the sorrowful wisps of anorexic shit, and Calvinist shit, and Kabbalah shit, Halliburton employee shit, Orthodox shit, Puritan shit, lesbian shit, nympho virgin poet chick shit, seas and rivers love the composting toilet, lakes and streams sparkle its praises, and the small creatures of the pond and creek keen for it, dark green machine, like a porcelain throne, though its royal flush is inside it, come sit on it, come be its queen or king. And I'll read two more. The the first of these two. The title poem of one secret thing. One secret thing. One secret thing happened at the end of my mother's life when I was alone with her. I knew it should happen. I knew someone was there in there, something less unlike my mother than anything else on Earth. And the jar was there on the table, the space around it pulled back from it, like the awestruck hand-made air around the creche, and her open mouth was parched. It was late. The lid eased off. I watched my finger draw through the jelly, its egg-sex essence. The four corners of the room were not creatures, were not the four winds of the earth. If I did not do this, what was I? I rubbed the cowlick of petrolatum on the skin around where the final measures of what was almost not breath swayed, and her throat made a guttural creek bed sound like pebbly relief, but each lip was stuck by chap to its row of teeth, stuck fast. And then I worked for my motherhood, my humanhood. I slid my forefinger slowly back and forth along the scab line and underlying canines and incisors, upper lip and then lower lip, until, like a basted seam, softly ripped, what had been joined was asunder. I ran the salve inside the folds, along the gums, common mercy. The secret was how deeply I did not want to touch inside her and how much the act was an act of escape, my last chance to free myself." I, I've been actually living in New Hampshire most of the last three years at a green inn where there's a composting toilet. But uh, I, uh, before for 40 years, lived in New York City. And um, I was there the day. Uh, mentioned by the title of this poem. September 11th, 2001. A week later, I said to a friend, I don't think I could ever write about it. Maybe in a year I could write something. There is something in me maybe someday to be written. Now it is folded and folded and folded like a note in school, and in my dream, Someone was playing jacks, and in the air, there was a huge, thrown, tilted jack on fire. And when I woke up, I found myself counting the days since I had last seen my ex-husband, only two years and some weeks and hours. We had signed the papers and come down to the ground floor of the Chrysler Building, the intact beauty of its lobby around us, like a king's tomb. On the ceiling, the little painted plane in the mural flying. And it entered my strictured heart this morning, slightly, shyly, as if warily, untamed, a greater sense of the sweetness and plenty of his ongoing life, unknown to me, unseen by me, unheard by me, untouched by me, but known by others, seen by others, heard, touched. And it came to me for moments at a time, moment after moment, to be glad for him that he is with the one he feels was meant for him now. And I thought of my mother, minutes from her death, 85 years from her birth, the almost warbler bones of her shoulder under my hand, the eggshell skull, as she lay in some peace in the clean sheets. And I could tell her the best of my poor, partial love. I could sing her out with it. I saw the luck and the luxury of that hour. So now we'll talk.
0: For that fascinating reading, Sharon. Um, a couple of questions from me, then we'll see what t- the audience has to ask. First question I would like to ask about the, the technical side of your writing. One particularly striking aspect of your poetry is its narrative drive. Do you conceive of the narratives that run through and connect to your poems as a whole, in other words, as a linear sequence, or do you arrive at each individual poem as a distinct entity?
1: Mm. I arrive at each poem as a distinct entity. I never realized that before. That sounds so good. Um, What I like about it, Brian, is that the way I think of it is my poem. Thank you. How my poems come to me. I've always thought of it as them coming to me, which is my image for whatever it is that happens when we think of something we might start to write. Um, I think that. I'm looking at my, I was just talking with Kathleen Jamie this afternoon and I realized I'm looking at my, um, at what I'm thinking and feeling. I'm looking at it as a painter might look at the world. I'm keeping an eye on it. I think there are ways to tell this apart from narcissism, but I'm not sure what they are. <laughs> but I think they are at least a little a different. You will, well, uh, cool, I like that. Uh, Yeah, so each one comes to me by itself Um, and some time ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was feeling disappointed that I never wrote anything long and then I thought, you know, like you're trying to cheer yourself up, I could look at like the stories, the poems about children in some way as if. They were one long poem in parts, though they appear in different books. And same with the sexual love poems and the family poems, and the poems about the Q, like the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that's an answer, but that's what so comes to So it's essentially
0: mind. collecting them that forms the, the, the linear aspect of them.
1: I think so. Chronology is very important to me, you know, how it is, each of us puts this together differently for me, partly because I was brought up to think that a wicked action of mine could give actual physical pain to someone like 1945 years ago. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah. So chronology is very important to me. I wanted to go forward. I wanted to move forward in time.
0: Well, on a completely different subject. Now, everyone here, you're all poetry fans. You know that poets don't inhabit ivory towers far removed from the real world. But that is an illusion that some people labor under. I know that poetry in the community is a particular interest of you, Sharon. Can you tell us a bit about the community teaching work that you do in New York? Yes,
1: yes. Um, um, I don't know what poetry is. There are those who know I am not among them. I don't really know what it is Um, or really what it's for. But I think one thing, is it sound okay now? Sounds a little different. Hi, Okay. Um, I think one thing that it's for is here we are, animals who know we will die. I don't know if we are, but I think we might be the only animals know that we're going to die and that everyone we love could um, die. So what do you do with that? And it seems to me our rhythmic chanting, which now is written out in the form of lines uh, once writing got going, um, has something to do with, with that. Therefore when it was my chance to go to a Hospital for the Paralyzed in New York City, a 900-bed state hospital, uh, to, to try to see if we could start up some writing, um, I went. And we could. And our graduate writing students at New York University have become the teachers there. I'm sort of like, I'm called the founding mom. And, uh, and the program has just uh, entered its 25th year. So, uh, yes, yes. And of course, concomitantly in this economy, we've, we've also lost a couple of our grants. So again, we're going to have to you know stir our energy up. Uh, but I'm sure we'll make it happen. Uh, so many of our writing students have taught in. And there's also at NYU a, a program on a children's oncology ward where our writing students They apply for these jobs and a few are selected from the many who apply. They go into a ward and they write with children and their parents. And this is a serious oncology ward and they all have a chance to write together. So um, my wonderful students, our wonderful students, uh, this is a, a, they are experiencing what poetry is for
0: more power to your pen and to your elbow in that respect. Let's throw the questions open to the audience now. Now, we have a a runner somewhere with a roving mic. Can I ask you to please wait till the mic gets to you, um, to speak clearly into it, and to pass the mic back as soon as you've finished asking your questions? So could we have a show of hands for any questions? Lady in the front here. Um,
2: You finished by saying, that these people learn what poetry is for. Can you speak a bit more about what that perhaps meant to those parents, to be able to write um, a poem with their child when purely the child was, mm-hmm. was leaving them?
1: Many of the children were. Um, I'm not a teacher in that particular program. Um, but the chance to make something together, the chance to share and making life Lots of humor. And to um, to do something with that time, however brief it's going to be. Um, and th- many of them are just wonderful poems. That again, that, that thing that I was saying about the eye, we want our eye to be able to be something like a, not really a virtual experience, but, but art surely is partly for Letting us imagine a little about what it would be like not to be ourselves, which will, you know, it will make us harder to hurt each other, right? Um, If we identify more with each other. Uh, So it is a time during which uh, the parents and the kids and the poets are having a wonderful time together. And they're dealing with whatever part of it that parents and uh, children want to deal with. Yeah. No, there's another question here. sometimes sorry. That's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes when I read your poetry and I'm often almost overwhelmed by a a sense of, of bravery or courage or a kind of raw intimacy that for me is in the poems around the dying of your mother, your father, and the sexual love poems. And I've often wondered, A, do you see it? How, how do you understand or name that kind of intimacy that, that, that you, you get across in your poetry? And, and how, how have you developed that as a human being? where has that come from Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thank you first of all thank you um i know myself to be a person of great fearfulness i'm a i'm a coward i i fear things i fear i'm not at the point of phobic where i won't go to the store or get on a plane but I'm aware of a lot of fear in ordinary situations, just meeting a new person or a, In other words, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Uh, right. But I think in terms of writing, first of all, there's no one there when I'm doing it. So it, there's no one there to be afraid of, right? Uh, and uh, I, I got some strange idea, I think, when I was a kid, that God couldn't see what you were writing. I don't know where he was, that maybe right behind you and somehow your back had become not see-throughable for him. But there seemed to me, well, I think it's really because art is a human thing we made. When we came about, we needed it. And it wasn't, uh, this is how I see it. I respect other views, but I see it that it's something we needed. And therefore, um, it's our business rather than some superpowers business. Uh, and then I think my the need, the desire, the wish, the longing, that I feel to experience my experience, which may be people who don't write experience in their experience. But to me, I don't really know that much, nor do I want to be thinking about art during life. But then the next day, if I'm thinking, I'm thinking, well, what was that just like? What? Probably also a desire for a connection with um, a reader, as I, as a reader, love to make that connection with a writer. So working against our innate aloneness, maybe. And we don't have control over whether this happens or not, really, I don't think. I, it's something that um, we wish for and we want to keep ourselves in shape for. Vitamins, <laughs> <laughs> exercise.
0: Uh, yeah. Now, a uh, gentleman up at the back there. <clears throat> thank you.
2: I have been deeply and profoundly touched and influenced by your poems tonight. I thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Um, years ago, I served on a book author session such as this because I've written a number of books in the field of event planning. And a poet was on the same panel with me, and I said, I wonder why we're seated together. She said, well, I suppose a poem is like an event. It's artistic, it's something you create as an individual and then share with others. And I was wondering, you wrote and read this beautiful poem about September the 11th. How is a poem like an event in terms of something that you create and share with others?
1: Thank you, I don't know. <laughs> but I think the way that poem—I never—I th- thought I would never write another poem. That was pretty obvious. In fact, it wasn't like, oh, I wonder if I'll write again. It was just, well, that's over, because this was, oh, I-, I wasn't blocks away. I didn't. But so the poem, the way the poem started was um, my. I don't know if it's an event or not, when you let yourself talk to yourself on the paper and say, you know, I had said to a friend, you know, I'm never going to write about this or anything else. And I don't know what an event is. So I don't know if it is one when you start to uh, record. Back, you back up a little uh, and start to record. I didn't have any idea where that poem would go. But again, no one would ever see it. So no one would know that I had, um, maybe it's my hair. No one would know that I had, I mean in my upbringing I would say blasphemed or some word for gone where you don't know enough to go. Like trying to write politically or write about a group very different from your own, I so rarely can do that because it's stepping over that line. But so I don't know what it, made to do that, and it surprised me when that opened in me the sense of the good fortunes that I experienced in my life, that it seemed like losses, and I could see the good fortune in them. I guess it's a kind of human event. It's something that happens to a person. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Certainly, as a festival director, I couldn't disagree with that for one minute. Now, I think there's another question here. (coughs) Um,
1: (coughs) You're one of
2: my favorite living poets, and I just wanted to ask you you who your favorite living poets were.
1: Ah, yes. What a wonderful question. Some of them are here tonight. You know (laughs) who you are. Um, I've I read so much of my students' work, and so the, the the people who come to my mind first tonight, just like that, are those to whom I was a student, not literally, um, but poets of that same generation, the generation older than mine, uh, Stanley Kunitz, um, and. Gwendolyn Brooks, Uh, Ruth Stone. I don't know if this name is known to you. Oh, Ruth Stone. Copper Canyon does her now. Uh, Amazing poet. And um, there's others whose names aren't coming to me right now, but that's the generation. Muriel Rukeyser. That's the generation that I think of when I think of the, well. Of course, they aren't living anymore, all of them. Any of them? So you, so there I am. I'm still back with my mothers and fathers, whether they're still breathing with us or not. Yeah, over here.: <laughs> Hello, Stanley.:
2: I wanted to ask you. Um, The psychoanalyst, uh, Melanie Klein, I think, has a very good metaphor for creativity, which she talks about as being a form of reparation, essentially for the young child, the fantasy of the young child killing the mother and repairing the image of the mother.
1: Was that claiming or killing the mother? Killing. (laughs) Thank you. Yes,
2: (laughs) killing the mother and that art in mm. its general form. Mm. It's a reconfiguration. So I wondered, firstly, what you thought about that as a metaphor. And also, I just wanted to put in your comment about using what the difference is between the I and narcissism, in, and how that fits in, in with that, and whether that form of reparation is the thing that actually changes it from being pure narcissism.
0: Uh. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> How long have you got? Yes,
1: that's very cool. Um, I'm not sure I understand the reclamation. Reparation. Pardon, reparation, see I'm not gonna hear this word. I keep mishearing, reparation. Oh, I see, I see. Oh, well what I think of is is this, what they say is that um, little children who are nursing are in some state of nursing, and it only goes that far. But there's some kind of devouring the earth thing that they're going through. Um, But that just seems so natural and animal to me. I see. So you make something to make up for the fact that you wanted to kill someone. Hmm. <laughs> this could be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's certainly, when I'm writing, a sense of need to do it and wish to do it and pleasure in doing it, especially if it seems to be going okay at the moment, um, that is, seems to me quite a primal, a primal good, feeling. Um, I have likened it, I'm going to have to think about this. I have likened that more to um, uh, the energy of, of wanting to give something or to give and take at the same time as in a sexual um, pleasure, but um, And I'm really gonna have to think about that because of the poems that I've written that are daughter poems. uh, For and against and with and of um, a mother. Yeah, Uh, I, I feel okay tonight, right here and now, having written them, all of them. And I would feel that if I Found out I was going to die soon, which I haven't found out, and therefore I believe I'm not. But if I did and I hadn't written those poems, oh, I'd be sorry, hadn't tried to tell that uncomfortable, unhappy, mean, eh, mm, too mean, mm, mm, those songs that I wanted to sing, I don't think um, we put into ourselves the experiences that we wish to bring forth in our poems. I think what's put into us is put into us, and then the way in which we can bring it forth, um, I, I just, I, I don't know. That wish to connect with other people, um, it would seem to me stronger for me, but, uh, but I'm gonna think about that. That's very cool. I have a feeling a poem may be coming on. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Now, we've time Thank for you. one more question. So up at the back, please. <coughs> Gaelic poet. Your poems have a wonderful kind of flow of thought and image, et cetera. But uh, I'd be interested to know how you craft them. They look very easy, but as a fellow writer, I think we all aspire to that kind of ease. Are you a crafter in the head, or are you a crafter on the page, a bleak screen? Where do you do most of your work, how much redrafting?
1: Thank you. Um, I do nothing in my head if I can help it. As soon as there's going to be a poem, I want to be there with it and for it. I write with a, a, a ballpoint pen in a grocery store notebook. This helps me remember. I don't have to do anything beautiful or meaningful, and I recycle paper a lot. So uh, I'm sort of—I feel the trees around when I'm when I'm doing that also, and I ask their forgiveness. And um, and then I type it up. Um, until a year ago on a manual portable typewriter that I would would have worn here on my back the last time I was here. So now I have this thing. Hmm. Uh, and I use it for typing and printing and then rewriting by hand. Yeah, uh, the form. I realized when I was maybe in my mid 50s that my form <laughs> had to do with the the hymnal that i have been raised on, and that actually my poems are in four beat lines and four line quatrains, heavily disguised by the bleh, oh, in, in, in ligament, uh and uh, the clumpation of them so that they aren't <laughs> apparently crafted. I did that so I wouldn't know I was a hymn copier. <laughs> but then, and I was so I was very mad for a, wha- um, a minute and then I thought, you've been given a form, this is bliss, this is good. Um, and some of the poems uh, in One Secret Thing were not rewritten much. And some of them were rewritten pretty much, but not so that parts don't move around. I can't do that. They all have to come out in one piece, and then most of the poets I know work from notebooks, and then they can move parts around. I don't need to learn to cut and paste on this new machine because (laughs) I don't know how to move parts around to begin with. Um, And yes, that wish that the, for me, the wish that that the craft not be too obvious also has to do with my feeling of of wanting uh, when it came to me, was standing in the grocery line with the week 's groceries and thinking wanting to put poems in the in the checkout, you know, just read this, and thinking, would my poems look fancy to the women sick, but true that I was there shopping with, so the appearance of non craft is as you say, something that I um, have worked on. Not too hard, but have played with.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you, Sharon. We're now going to end with some more poems. Well, thank you very much for that. Poems, um, I have to announce that, of course, there will be a book signing after this, and a chance to meet Sharon properly, talk to her, ask her more questions. It's in the book signing tent just immediately to the right of here when you go outside. Could I also ask that you allow Sharon and myself to make a dive for the door so we can get to the book signing tent before all of you. But could you please welcome back for the last set of poems, Sharon Oldson.
1: Thank you. I'd like to... um, I'm going to read four poems, and I'd like to start with one which will be in the book Stag's Leap. It's named after that California wine. Very familiar to me having grown up in California. Um, And I've been looking at parks a little when I've walked around uh, these beautiful parks and it's made me think of uh, Central Park in New York. So I thought I'd read this one called, Years later, at first glance, there on the bench where he'd agreed to meet, it didn't seem to be him. But then the face of grim friendliness was my former husband's, like the face of a creature looking out from inside its Fort Knox. No fault, no knock. Clever nut of the hearing aid, hidden in the ear, I do not feel I love anymore. Band-aid on the cheek, peopled with tiny lichen from a land I don't know. We walk. I had not remembered how he held himself inside himself with me, my fun for 32 years to lure him out. I still kind of want to, as if I see him as a being with a baby paw caught. His voice is the same, low, still pushed around the level bubble in his throat. We talk of the kids, and it's as if that will never be taken from us. But for me, he's not really here, as if there's no one there, as when he was with me. It seemed there was no one there for any other woman for the first 30 years. Now I see I've been hoping each year he would praise me for how well I took it, but it's not to be. Are you happy as you thought you'd be, I ask? Yes, and his smile is touchingly pleased. I thought you'd look happier, I say, but after all, when I am looking at you, you're with me. We smile, his eyes warm a moment with the old shift, as if he's turning into the species he was for those 30 years, and turning back. I glance toward his torso once, His legs, he's like a stick figure now. The way when I was with him, other men seemed like Ken dolls, all clothes. Even the gold of his fresh wedding ring is no blade to my heart. This is married Ken. As I walk him toward his street, I joke. And for an instant, he's alive toward me, a gem of sea of pond in his eye. Then that retreat into himself, which always moved me, as if there were a sideways gravity in him towards some vanishing point. And no, he does not want to meet again in a year. When we part, it is with a dry bow and goodbye. And then there's the spring park, damp as if freshly peeled, sweet greenhouse, green cemetery with no dead in it except in some shaded woods under some years of leaves and rotted cones, the body of a warbler, like a whole note fallen from the sky, my old love for him, like a songbird's rib cage picked clean. And one more of the mother poems from a little earlier in the book. This is Little End Ode. Little End Ode When I told my mother the joke the new kid at college who asked where the library's at and the sophomore who said, at Yale we do not end our sentences with prepositions (laughs) whereupon the frosh said, oh, I beg your pardon where's the library at, asshole (laughs) She shrieked with delight. Asshole, she murmured fondly. She's become so fresh, rinsed with sweetness, as if she is music, the strings especially high and bright. She says it and sighs with contentment, as if she has finally talked back to her own mother. Or maybe it is the closest she has come for a while to the rich animal life she lived with her second husband, now I can see that, of course, she touched him everywhere, as lovers do. She touched me there, you know, courteously, with oil like myrrh. Soon after she had given me life, she gave me pleasure, which gave her pleasure. Maybe it felt to her fingertip like the complex, clean knot of her fire girl's tie clasp. She seems, these days, like a very human goddess. I do not want her to die. This feels like a new not want, a shalt not want, not want. As soon as I dared, around 50, I called her, to myself, the A word. And yet, now, if she goes, when she goes, to me it is like the departure of a whole small species of singing bird from the earth. The Last Evening. Then we raised the top portion of the bed, and her head was like a trillium, growing up out of the ground in the woods, eyes closed, mouth open. And we put the battle arias on. And when I heard the first note, that was it for me, I excused myself from the death room guests and went to my mother and cleared a place on the mattress beside her arm, lifting the tubes, oxygen, dextrose, morphine, dipping in under them, and letting them rest on my hair, as if burying myself under a topsoil of roots. I pulled the sheet up over my head, and touched my forehead and nose and mouth to her arm, and then, against the warm solace of her skin, I sobbed full out, unguarded, as I have not done near her. And I could feel some barrier between us dissolving. I could feel myself dissolving it, moving ever closer to her through it till I was all there. And in her coma, nothing drew her away from giving me the basal kindness of her presence. When the doctor came in, he looked at her and said, I'd say hours, not days. When he left, I ate a pear with her, talking us through it, and walnuts, and a crow, a whole bouquet of crows came apart outside the window. I looked for the moon and said, I'll be right back, and ran down the hospital hall. And there, outside the eastern window, was the waxing gibbous like a swimmer's head turned to the side half out of the water, mouth pulled to the side and back to take breath. I could see my young mother, slim and strong in her navy one piece, and see, in memory's dark blue corridor, the beauty of her crawl, the hard, graceful, overhand motion, as someone who says, this way, to the others behind. And I went back and sat with her alone an hour in the quiet, and I felt almost not afraid of losing her. I was so content to have her beside me, unspeaking, unseeing, alive." And I've been writing odes for the last year and a half, I guess. I think they're odes. I don't dare look it up in case they aren't odes, and then I'll be (laughs) all nervous. But um, it's something new that just came to me uh, a while back. And um, I've just followed the impulses where they led me. Ode to the Hymen, I don't know when you came into being inside me when I was inside my mother maybe when the involuntary muscles were setting like rose jello. I love to think of you then, so whole, so impervious, both you and the clitoris as safe as the life in which you were housed. They would have had to kill both my mother and me to get at either of you. I love her at this moment as the big fortress around me, the matron head around the sweet meat of my maiden head. I don't know who invented you to keep a girl's inwards clean and well-cupboarded. Dear wall, dear gate, dear style, dear Dutch door, not a cat flap nor a swinging door, but a one-time pinata. (laughs) How many places in the body were made to be destroyed once? You were very sturdy, weren't you? You took your job so seriously. I had never experienced pain as pure as that. You were the woman the magician saws into. I was proud of you. You seemed to turn into a cup full of the bright arterial ingredient. And how lucky we were, you and I, that we got to choose when and with whom and where and why, plush, pincushion, velvet lining, somehow related to statues that wept. You were the Valentine heart. It happened on the rug of a borrowed living room, but I felt as if we were in Diana's woods, he and I and you together, or as if we were where the magma from the core of the sea burst up through the floor of the sea. Thank you for your life and death. Thank you for your flower girl walk before me, throwing down your scarlet petals. It would be years before I married, years before I carried within me a tiny baby hymen near the eggs with other teensy hymens within them. But you unscrolled the carpet, leading me into the animal life of a woman. You were a sort of blood mother to me. First, you held me close for 18 years and then you let me go. Thank you.